Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by AG Chase Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making Coast of Mississippi such an amazing place to live, work, and play. You know, we're really lucky to live here. Uh, for so many incredible reasons. And uh, if you if you listen to my regular conversations with Jeff Duncan every Friday, at, uh, every single Friday, Jeff, as you know, is from NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune. What a dynamic situation we have today with a new coach and all the important decisions he's got to make as we go forward. But Jeff often talks about the Gulf South, you know, how important the Gulf South is to – uh, the New Orleans Saints, and Jeff certainly understands that. As you as you've heard me say before, Jeff's actually looking for a place to to uh, to to potentially buy in Hancock County. So he may become a Mississippian before all this is over with. Uh, but anyway, the Gulf South is um, is strong and it's important and uh, especially important to the Saints. So I hope you're joining me and Jeff on our on our weekly conversations at um, at uh, on Fridays. Um, you know, one of the if you're a regular listener as well, you've heard me have conversations with my friend James O'Byrne. Uh, James is a Pulitzer Prize winning editor and writer. We used to work together at NOLA.com and the Times Picayune. It's, it's this incredible history in news in New Orleans. He certainly understands the importance of the Gulf South. That is for sure. Um, he's the former VP of Inno- Innovation for NOLA Media Group. Somebody I really enjoyed working with, and it's been great through this show to stay in touch with James because he made this incredible decision to move to France. He and his wife Paula moved to France, and he's a traveler and a photographer. He's a partner in Travelers for Life, Um, and he will hear a little bit more about that here in just a second. But I've invited him back. We're going to spend the whole show together today just talking and catching up and seeing what's the latest in his world. So welcome back to Coast View, my friend. It's great to be here, Ricky. Great to talk again. There, there could be a slight delay because, again, the wonders of modern technology. James is in France, and uh, and his little countryside uh, community. We'll learn more about that in a second. But what's what? Tell me what what time is it now in France, James? It's a little after five thirty p.m. here in France. And uh, interestingly, the uh, the uh, the region we live in, the the Bourgogne or Burgundy, as we would say in English. Has been, in in fact, part of the part of the whole country effort right now to run high speed fiber throughout the uh, entire country. And uh, right now, France has the highest uh, rate of high speed internet in Europe. But unfortunately, that doesn't include our town yet. However, which is probably explains some of the delay. We're still on actually old DSL lines here in Flavigny, where we live. Uh, but we're supposed to take the leap forward into fiber optics uh, sometime this year, hopefully the first half of the year, and things will change dramatically when that happens. You know, last year, last year, James, Mississippi passed a new bill that enabled the power co-ops, the rural, uh, rural power co-ops, to get into the fiber optics business. And they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars across Mississippi now providing you know, high-speed internet access to to rural communities. Think about the Mississippi Delta and how impoverished it is. The opportunity to connect them, I mean, it will have. It, many have said it will have more revolutionary impact on our ability to sort of catch up and not be last 
uh, than any single thing that we can do. Is that the way you're looking at it in France as well? I think so. And, and the other thing that it does, I think there's a there's a greater sense of urgency uh, in the light of the pandemic, because the only thing that really limits uh, people from working remotely now is the ability to have high speed Internet. So I think there's a lot of push and a lot of pressure on the on the national government to get this project to completion so that people can can uh, work these hybrid uh, versions of half in the office, half at home or all remote or whatever it takes to uh, to, you know, survive in the emerging post pandemic modern economy. Well, and again, you and I have talked about this before as well. But if you think about Katrina and trends ahead of Katrina, all Katrina did was speed up those trends, whether they might be housing related or affordable housing related or worker related or whatever they might be, it sped them up. The pandemic did the same thing. We already saw prior to the pandemic, as, as you had the opportunity to see a bit, as George Freeland from the Jackson County Economic Development Foundation and I discussed, that this push toward the new economy described as, as, as being really focused on the worker. And, and and we already saw a, a move toward people wanting to select the towns they want to live. You, in fact, did that. You moved to France. Uh, but what 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 yes. is important is the ability to technologically be connected and be able to be being able to work remotely. All the pandemic did was speed that up, didn't it? It did indeed. I was and th thinking back to Katrina. I was remembering that uh, I think that those of us who lived through the storm. Uh, in Mississippi and in New Orleans, uh, were the first people over the age of 15 who learned how to text <laughs> because we had to in order to communicate long before the cell system was back up and running. So uh, we were we were first adopters in that. Unbelievable, respect. unbelievable. Hey, so let's reflect a bit, if you don't mind. Uh, let's remind people what you did before you made this decision to move to France. Uh, you and Paula, I shouldn't leave Paula out of the conversation, but, you know, when I was talking to uh, to Jeff Duncan about you off the air, Jeff said that you're living a dream and he's living vicariously through you, uh, through your regular post on Instagram and so on. But talk a little bit about, you know, that that transition. Well, we were we were in kind of a career transition um, and looking to uh, to move to the West Coast because I have a one son in the West Coast and one son who works in Southeast Asia, and I figured that would be closer to them. So I had a really good job opportunity in Seattle, and we were trying to decide whether we were going to pursue that or do something else. And we came to a friend's house in a tiny little village in uh, Burgundy, about an hour south of Paris by high speed train just to spend uh, eight or nine days kind of figuring out what we wanted to do in our next step of life. And uh, we turned out to, to be interested in maybe just looking at some houses for fun, which we did. And, uh, and the last house we looked at on the day that we looked at about eight houses, we fell in love with, and two days later um, signed an agreement to buy it. And so we never actually went back to uh, the workaday world. Um, you know, there were a lot of factors that allowed that to happen. Um, I worked for a private company, a company you worked for as well, for a long time that had a very, very good um, pension plan that I didn't even realize was going to be as worthwhile as it was. And uh, it's very inexpensive to live in the French countryside. People think about the cost of living in France as being Paris, which is just like any other big city, New York or, or Los Angeles. Um, it's expensive. But in, if you go out into the countryside where we are, and where the internet is bad, 
you can uh, you can live very cheaply and uh, and uh, live very well. And uh, Jeff is right. There are a lot of people who live vicariously through us, but some of them are more uh, bitter about it than others. Um, <laughs> but uh, it uh, it is a dream. We live in a village that's uh, established in 900 A.D. Our house was built in 1633. Um, it's a medieval stone cottage, um, but uh, very very thoroughly renovated by the previous owners. Um, we the back of our house faces west. We have a terrace, a deck, a raised deck that looks to the west, and we can watch the sunset over the valley and the French countryside every evening in the in the summertime. And um, we don't see the sun much in the winter, but it's worth the wait. And it's been uh, really quite a dream come true. Well, I have a friend of mine here on the coast who's longtime political consultant and ad agency and so on. His name is Reed Geis. He's quite a quite a figure here in coastal Mississippi. His dad I know Reed. was the, you I know, Reed. Reed. Yeah. So, oh, of course, you know, Reed. Now I just, boy, <laughs> it rushes back to me. It rushes back to yes. me. Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we did, we did work with Reed on some projects for sure. That now that I think about it. Uh, okay. So anyway, Reed said when he went over to Europe on his honeymoon, when he came back, I said, Reed, how was it? He said, oh, it was amazing. I said, well, what's your biggest observation? He says, everything is old, <laughs> really old. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it really, when you live in a community like you live and sort of grasp the, the history of it all, it really brings into focus how new America is, it, doesn't it? It's a very, very young country. And, uh, and, you know, from a European perspective, I think there's some view that uh, that the United States is in its uh, it's in its in its troubled adolescence as a country right now and uh, and struggling through it to get to some version of adulthood that uh, that you know we're all sort of uh, living through yeah it's a difficult situation and uh, I, I have I have a lot of confidence in our democracy although I have to tell you at times um, you know I worry. But I still think that at the end of the day, America is a strong country and that we, we will live through this. I, you know, you and I have had entire shows where we talked about the role that social media has played in all of this. And it's still playing and the, the role that social media has played in the pandemic and, you know, the divisions and whatever. I, I really, I, if I look back and I've continued to study, as you know, the, the, the social media, the use of advanced artificial intelligence to determine needs, news feeds and all of that. Um, I, I've had some terrific conversations since you and I talked with some really, really smart people who are engaged in this industry. Um, I'm as concerned today as I ever was. I'm more concerned today than I ever was because I don't have a sense that we're regulatorily or legislatively going to get ourselves out of this and the industry doesn't seem focused on it. Maybe we'll talk more about that as we go we go through this conversation today. Sure. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with uh, James O'Byrne, just a smart friend who lives in France who used to work together and uh, have a wide variety of conversations that we're going to have today. We'll see you after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coach Yo. My old friend James O'Byrne. We used to work together in New Orleans. He's just a smart guy. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's a photographer, a writer. He travels a lot. Uh, he lives in France these days, and uh, we're just uh, we're just catching up. James, one of the things I, we'll come back to social media because I think I do think we should probably consider con- continue that part of the conversation. One of the things that amazes me <clears throat> is how you and Paula at your ages, decided to tackle French, and you went head on with it. And both of you are smart as hell. You read a lot. But it's not an easy language to learn, is it? It is not an easy language to learn. And even though, um, you know, (laughs) we're both, uh, you know, fairly astute, we also have old brains. And uh, it, it takes a little while for the 60 plus year old brain to uh, take on a new language, especially one as difficult as French. Uh, we study, uh, we take a course every week with a with a, a private professor. Uh, we were in person for a long time and in the pandemic we kept going through Zoom. We go for two hours a week. We ate a lot of homework and uh, you know, progress is slow but steady. Um, I would say that the um, the two milestones that have happened in the last year or so, and now we've been at, we've been here for five years. One is that we can speak French well enough now that we get invited to um, social events in the village where they're only going to speak French. There are people in the village who speak English, but we are now invited to fr- all French evenings and expected to keep up and socialize and be able to have conversations in French. And um, some nights it goes better than others, but uh, and we're, we're always tired after those evenings. But we're able to hold our own in the language now. And the other, I think, big milestone is uh, we can uh, have a phone call, a phone conversation with uh, like delivery people and the like in French and kind of muddle through it. Um, it's much more difficult to talk on the phone than to talk in person. You can't see people's mouths moving. And of course, the other problem was that just, just as soon as we started getting pretty well at understanding other people when they talked, everyone put a mask on. <laughs> and covered their faces and we could no longer see their mouths move and so it was a, quite a setback for the last year and a half two years just trying to comprehend the language and hear it in your in your ear and repeat it so it's been a what struggle the, but we've been we've been making steady progress Pretty one of the things that it. jeff yeah one of the things that jeff duncan and i talked about was that we were impressed with the way that you came into that small community. Some people could speak English, some could not. And you and you were still able to create, like you had in New Orleans, sort of this new friend group, this new community-focused group where you can sit together and have wine. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really impressive you were able to do that with the language barrier. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think we were both very conscious of the fact that we would have to work at it. And also that uh, it was really, really important uh, to have a social infrastructure. But I think one of the great benefits of making this kind of radical change late in your life, relatively late in your life, in the last third of your life, is that uh, what we really didn't expect would happen was our lives actually got a lot bigger. Because we still have our friends in New Orleans and our friends, you know, I talk to you on a regular basis. You know, the people that that we knew and we loved in on on the gulf coast are still there and they're still part of our lives and we're back in new orleans at least twice a year at least we were before the pandemic um and uh and and so but but now we have these new friends people who are really important to us people who will be friends for of ours for the rest of our lives 
And it's an unexpected uh, bonus of, uh, of moving to a new country, is that there are people dear to us now on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's been great. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. Hey, so let's come back to social media. I mentioned that I've had so many cool conversations over the past year or so since you and I last talked about <clears throat> social media. And one of those conversations was with Chip Pickering. Chip is a former congressman from Mississippi, and he leads an industry trade uh, association called Encompass. And the key players in Encompass are are Microsoft and Facebook and Netflix and Twitter and Google. You can imagine the big biggest players. And they're concentrating currently on at least some discussion around legislation, antitrust legislation for, for big tech. And one of his concerns that he expressed to me is that that you have over here the issues with social media and the concerns about censorship and fake news and all of this. You know, this is swirling. It's political. It's societal. It's, you know, there's a lot involved in that. But over here, though, you have really a tech industry that for so long was really leading America. And um, if you think about, you know, the iPhone was just introduced in 2007. You and I have had tremendous conversations about that and what has happened technologically since there. We're still in the infancy of technology when you think about advanced artificial intelligence and where, you know, um, you know, where all these different technologies are going. And he's concerned that because of, of Congress's concerns about, about social media and this stuff, that they will pass legislation that, that keeps them from continuing to be innovative. They're really concerned about that. And, uh, of course, the big, I mean, we're, we're at battle with all other countries when it comes to innovation, technological innovation. But China, in particular, is a serious concern because they won't have these encumbrances on them. Uh, it's a complicated world we live in today, technologically. As you, as you kind of think about it these days, what, what's, your, what's your sort of going thought about this? Well, I agree with you that it's complicated. And, you know, you, wanna, you want to, uh, you have issues of free speech. You know, the United States has really the, probably the strongest provision for free speech built into its constitution of any country on earth. You have issues of uh, technological. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to um, um, stop technological change and technological progress. But I think that one of the unanticipated consequences of the social media models that we that exist now is that is that the uh, it's actually designed to build our mistrust in everything. Um, the, the system is designed mathematically to build mistrust in institutions, in facts, in government, in scientists, and in each other, which is really important. And I think that that opens people up to exploitation in ways that we really didn't anticipate that it would. Um, anyone who wants to exploit a situation and step in and magnify our mistrust by telling us that we can't trust anything has found a, a, a pretty rich environment in which to operate, no matter what the issue or topic is. It kind of yeah. begs the question about why it is we're so inclined to trust those people who say you can't trust anyone. But setting that aside, um, this erosion of the civic square, I think, is the big problem with the, with the platforms. This had profound effects on our ability to function as a community, whether it be a village, a major city, a state, a country. You see this erosion of sense of commonality and so, of course, you see this erosion in the idea of a common good. And the question is, how do you 
have a functional democracy in which people of good conscience can disagree about things, if no one believes in the common good and everyone mistrusts everyone else. Now, the fact that that's not an accident of these systems, but actually a design feature of these systems is something that I think has to be addressed. And what we've seen is that despite the pressures that have been brought to bear socially and culturally on these organizations, their big businesses and big businesses in general don't do things against their business interests unless you make them. So how do you design a regulatory framework that prevents them from simply taking whatever our basest instincts or fears are and magnifying them? Because that's having a devastating corrosive effect on culture and society in a way that I don't think anyone ever anticipated when we saw the Internet as this great opportunity for the marketplace. As you and I spent a career on this, I mean, the reality that in order to have a functioning, viable democracy, and, you know, a, a democracy of the people, we've got to have an informed citizenry. And as, as Alberto Bargain always pointed out to me, a reliably, a reliably informed, and I would also add accurately informed citizenry. Um, you know, I, I like the way, it, the, the one part of our last conversation that I never forgot was, um, and I think it's important for people to understand this, that what, what Facebook did for so long is they focused on getting a lot of people who were using Facebook. And then along the way, some 20-somethings in Silicon Valley developed what, as you and I know, because we had we understand digital advertising and what drives digital advertising. They created this platform, this incredibly smart platform, ad platform, ad delivery mechanism, because they're learning so much about people. When you agree to go on Facebook, you agree to give a lot of personal data. They learn an incredible amount about you. And they're able to deploy artificial intelligence to be able to do unbelievably accurate uh, target ad targeting based on your your demographics, based on your likes, based on your dislikes, and so on. But what they did is somewhere along the way, someone had the magic idea to use that same delivery mechanism to determine our news feeds. And when we come back from break, we'll talk about why that is so incredibly detrimental, why it's important for us to have contrary points of view, but not necessarily have a, have a news feed full of people who agree with us. When you have that, you really don't have a functioning democracy, especially when it's based on inaccurate information. We'll come back with James O'Byrne on the other side. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. And now, it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews, brought to you by AGJ Systems and Networks on Supertalk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend James O'Byrne. He's a um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, travel writer, photographer, just smart guy who lives in France who came from the Gulf South. He lived in New Orleans for quite a long time and made his impact, especially 
before and after Katrina in New Orleans. When we went to break, though, you heard sort of the, the at the foundation <laughs> is this ad delivery mechanism that you and I both know to be unbelievably smart and innovative. By using that to determine our news feeds, they have undermined societies and democracies around the world. And I'm not over, overstating that, am I? I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, one of the things we we saw early on in the Internet was that it was a place that allowed people to say things that they wouldn't normally say to people they were sitting across the table from or sitting at the bar with face to face. So it, I already had kind of a um, sort of a lowering of our sort of civic standards and and standards of civility. And then you created an environment in which the companies figured out that if they just um, preyed on our fears and then used the platform and the algorithm to magnify those fears, they could make a great deal of money. And uh, and the 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 metric they use is engagement. And it is much easier to engage someone by saying, you know, here's something that we we think you'll agree with. Here's something that we think we know you're afraid. Here's something that will tell you that you're not wrong to be afraid. And that's much more engaging and much more time consuming online than say, here's an alternative view or here's a different viewpoint that's less engaging. So what they're interested in is engagement because engagement equals dollars and profit. And that's that's how they've designed the entire system. And I think that by designing the system that way and applying it to our information system, our information ecosystem now is completely reliant upon confirming our bias, confirming our view and confirming our worst fears. And of course, you're not going to have a functioning civil society if that's how we're getting our information. Yeah, when your newsfeed is full of people who agree with you, that's not that's not a good thing. And that's what the artificial intelligence is doing. You know, it occurred to me while you were talking, when you and I were together in NOLA Media Group and we were having conversations and setting goals around engagement. Never in our wildest imagination did we ever think the term engagement would be used in this context. Uh, it's amazing no. how it has uh, evolved, isn't it? It is, and, and I think well, the other the other important thing that that we did um, at the at the uh, at the newspaper and the website was we believed in tending the garden. We believed in applying rules and standards to behavior in the public spaces that that were we created for people to to engage with our content that took effort it took staff it took resources i mean we weren't always perfect at it but there was a underlying philosophy that if we create the garden we need to tend the garden and what's interesting about these mega platforms now whether it be facebook meta whatever it's calling itself this week, it's still the same beast, Spotify, Twitter. These these platforms have decided they're not really gonna tend the garden by and large. If you if you go completely off the reservation, they'll, they'll uh, restrict or ban your account, but they're not going to engage in any kind of moderation of material. And they hide behind this notion that they're platforms instead of publishers, which is hard to justify given the amount of money they're spending to make sure you don't get that content on anybody else's platform, which is another way of sort of, you know, 
making sure that you know you can only see things in certain places and not other places. It's a way of controlling content flow, which we used to call publishing, but they call something else. So, so at some point as a society, we're going to have to figure out a way to get a handle on it within the confines of a constitutional system that's pretty open and pretty free. Yeah. So let me, let me summarize what James just said, because we're talking about Section 230 protection. And essentially what happened is technology companies have evolved since that, that section was created, I might add. It's just a wild world. At the time that it was developed, it was about commenting and comment streams, et cetera. But it still applies to technology companies today. They, they claim to be in the technology business. They don't claim to be publishers or content providers, even though that's really what they are. Um, James, when you talk about the, the, the work that we put into at NOLA Media Group and other companies like ours at the time, the work that we put into moderation, the work that we put into making sure that stories were corroborated and as accurate as possible and the layers of, of uh, editors and all all that was expensive. That was extremely expensive. So if you were to if you were to suddenly say that Facebook is a publisher, and they had to have the same kind of moderation and the same kind of efforts to to determine accuracy of whatever, they, their whole business model would go to hell in a handbasket, wouldn't it? Well, I don't know how much how how much it would go to hell in a handbasket. I think it might it might reduce their billions. I mean, these are the richest companies on earth. Um, you know they have they have uh, um, bottom lines that are bigger than the G, you know the the gross national product of many countries. So I'm not sure that we're at the point where asking them to engage in the in the civil the civic life of America to a greater extent than they're currently doing is asking them to go out of business. It might be asking them to direct some of their profit to tending the garden they've created, but they should have been doing that from the beginning in order to be responsible members of a functioning society, it seems to me. One of the things that Chip Pickering and I talked about was it's almost impossible to get any focus on any specific issue these days in the U.S. because there's so much noise, so much noise, maybe pandemic noise, it might be political noise, it might, whatever the noise. <clears throat> and as a result, we're not able to solve any problems now. Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, we, we kind of are in this gridlock mode in America. Do you guys have the same kind of conversations in France about the sort of governmental issues in France and Macron these days? Or are the conversations different? They're, they are they are different. It's been interesting to be in a country with a centralized healthcare system, a socialized healthcare system, highly efficient and high with with very very good results. In in the middle of the pandemic, I mean everything about uh, the pandemic um, and how it unfolded. Uh, has unfolded in Europe in a different way than the United States. And, and overall, the, 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 it's been tremendously beneficial. Uh, it's not difficult to find tests in, the, in Europe. It's not difficult to, to get a test if you need it, to buy a home test or go to the drugstore and get a test. Um, the record keeping is, is, um, is impeccable. Uh, the, the death rates are lower, the disease rates are lower. And I think some of the struggles that the United States has had with the pandemic is is an indication of what you're talking about, that this is a country that used to solve big problems. 
And here we are two years in and people are still trying to get a test. Um, and so sort of the, the basic fundamentals that, that uh, everyone agreed upon beforehand, before the pandemic, about what you would need in a pandemic, were just kind of left by the wayside. Shortages of masks, shortages of tests. These are not things that the most powerful economy on earth should be struggling with. So I think that there's there it's worthwhile to, to, to look seriously at ourselves and figure out what it is about our current structures that makes it difficult for us to solve big problems because this isn't going to be the last big problem we have to grapple with. It's not going to be the last big problem we have to grapple with. And there are <clears throat> lots of challenges for sure. Hey, I'm curious and we'll we'll pick this up now. And if on the other side, we'll continue the part of the conversation. You know, Macron is trying to play an intermediary between sort of NATO and Putin today. And the most recent news is that there, there, there's a little bit of worry on the part of NATO that Macron could be freewheeling. They're wanting to understand more about it as, uh, as this thing unfolds. But what do people in France think about the role that he's playing? Well, it's interesting. I think that from the time he was elected, which is uh, he's up for re-election uh, in April of this year, um, but from the time he was elected almost five years ago, Macron has positioned himself as uh, a leader who thinks that Europe should be more autonomous and independent and uh, self-supporting in a lot of ways. And I think that I think during the previous administration, when there was a de-emphasis of NATO, the, the Europeans saw the, the inherent danger in relying too much upon the United States for for their well-being. Um, and so I think that uh, I think that he's been oriented towards that all along. Um, on the one hand, I understand that the uh, certainly the State Department and the administration are worried about him freewheeling it a little bit. On the other hand, he seems to be the only one who has managed to maintain a working um, speaking relationship with Putin without agreeing with everything he wants or acceding to his demands. So as long as that line of communication is open, I think that I think that he'll continue to to do what he can to try to de-escalate the conflict. As it is, this war will occur on European soil, not in the United States. And so Europe has a significant interest in making sure that it doesn't get out of hand regardless of what uh, what interest the United States might have in the, in the situation. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with James uh, O'Byrne, just a smart guy, old friend. Uh, talk a bit more about this conflict. What's it all about? We'll see you after this break. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. I'm with James O'Byrne, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, travel writer, lives in France these days, is from the New Orleans area or lived in the New Orleans area for a significant amount of his time and uh, just a, a good friend and smart guy. When we went to break though, we were talking about Macron's role in sort of mediating the current tensions between Ukraine and, and Russia. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian-Russian situation is not something that suddenly occurred. I mean, you may remember when Russia went in to take Crimea. This was part of an ongoing struggle to sort of define 
what this new world order is going to look like as it relates to Putin's Putin's responsibility and uh, and what he wants his legacy to be. And he believes that this this conflict with with Ukraine is the only way he can get the attention of NATO, of European countries and the US and he's determined to define sort of what this new world order is going to be as it relates to Russia. And uh, when you guys talk about it in France, how do you how do you guys talk about it? Well, it feels it feels close uh, in in France and in Europe in general because uh, because if that conflict were to spin out of control, it would spin out of control within the European continent before it spun out of control anywhere else. So uh, it's a it's a big deal. Europe is united in the in the notion that uh, that Russia does not get to dictate um, to, to dictate who gets to join NATO or become a democracy and who doesn't. And I think that any other position, that's certainly the position of the United States as well. So in that sense, they're very unified. What's interesting to me is that the United States can do something um, to greatly uh, decrease the influence of Russia in Europe, and it hasn't done it yet. And that is that Europe is, is uniquely reliant upon Russia for its natural gas supplies, for its heating in the winter, basically. In order to stay warm, Europe must have Russian natural gas. Now, Russian natural gas sold to Europe makes up a significant part of its economy. So there is a typical synergy there that's 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 essential. But uh, with a couple, with two or three tankers full of uh, liquefied natural gas, and a little bit of investment in better LNG technology along the Gulf coasts of the United States. You could solve Europe's energy dependency on the Soviet Union, and, and I'm not inventing this. There are there are many strategic thinkers, um, conservative strategic thinkers as well, who believe that the U.S. has or should already have done this. That that the fact that Putin uses his leverage over Europe by by threatening to cut off the natural gas supply is silly when the United States is the largest producer and the largest exporter of natural gas in the world. So why haven't we closed that loophole was a really big question for me because I think this particular conflict would be significantly different if uh, Putin couldn't threaten to turn off the heat in February in Northern Europe um, if if uh, we refuse his advances in, in Ukraine. Wow, it's going to be an interesting thing, and we'll we'll come back to it in the in the future and continue the conversation. Hey, the little bit of time we have left. My son Justin, when he went to New York City, he could find a bar to go to that everyone who was there were Saints fans, and man, they were who dat and enjoying being a Saints fan. Is there a bar anywhere in France that you can go to and find other Saints fans? No, there is not. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened is I've sort of become a Formula One fan. And part of it is that, you know, football, half the football games that uh, occur in the United States occur after midnight here. And frankly, Ricky, I'm, I'm 62 years old and I'm not really looking to stay up till three o'clock in the morning to watch a football game. So at least the Formula One races occur during the daytime. Um, so I think the NFL's getting bigger and bigger in Europe. It's certainly getting big in in, um, in the UK where where the Saints will be playing again in London. I was at the last game um, that the Saints played in London by by taking the train from France rather than flying from the United States. But uh, 
But I think that uh, that the NFL has a ways to go in Europe uh, because it's really difficult to engage in the games live when they happen in the middle of the night. Yes, it's kind of the problem with with the Olympics, to be honest with you, is that the, the delay and time difference is a, is a real problem. Um, but you're still a big Saints fan, man. I know that for sure. And uh, still a big Dennis Saints Allen. fan. I've been following everything, but uh, you know, and and certainly. When I can, when I can see them streaming, I watch them, but it's it's fairly rare event. You uh, you're not surprised to see Dennis Allen become the next Saints fan, uh, Saints head coach, are you? Not at all, not at all. I mean, he's he's been in that coordinator position for a long time, and I think he certainly earned another shot um, at a at a head coaching job. He needs a quarterback, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. He Jeff described that as the Saints are members of this uh, of those who are in the sea of. Um, oh gosh, how did he say it? Sea of have nots. Of have nots. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. The sea of have nots as it relates to. Uh, and we were the halves to... for so long. It was such a nice run to be in the halves. You know, I had a little tragedy the other day. I opened up my uh, my DVD of the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, the um, Saints Super Bowl, and the DVD case was empty, which means that I must have left the DVD in the DVD player that I sold in the United States before we moved to France. So now I'm wow. without the without the game. <laughs> hey, Formula One is more popular in America today because of the Netflix special. Be interested in you know your views on that. We'll do that the next time we're together. But listen, James O'Byrne, it's been terrific to have the opportunity to catch up with you, my friend. I'm glad you and Paul are still doing well, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Always enjoyable. Thanks. Take care. Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.